listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. The Boarding Schools Expo takes the time and stress out of finding the right school to meet your family's needs. By bringing schools to major centres where they're all under the one roof, the Boarding School Expo gives your family the chance to discuss your educational needs directly with representatives of the school. In 2022, they're launching Boarding Expo 365, a virtual expo reaching families across Australia. Whether you're up in the Kimberley, flying choppers east of Normanton or making Bree on King Island, Boarding Expo 365 will showcase schools right from your kitchen table. It's truly destination boarding from wherever you call home. Head to their website, boardingexpo.com.au, to discover your boarding school options today. Anika Molesworth is a farmer, scientist and storyteller, and she's on a mission to cultivate climate courage. In an incredibly short period of time, Anika has amassed a number of accolades, including Young Farmer of the Year, Young Australian of the Year finalist, and a Master's and PhD degree. That's right, she's Dr. Anika Molesworth. She's also released a best-selling book titled Our Sunburnt Country and co-founded the Farmers for Climate Action movement. The most incredible thing is, though, Anika has achieved all of this from her geographically and technologically isolated home of Rupee Station in far, far west New South Wales. I sat down with Anika on the weekend to learn more about what makes her tick, what keeps her going, and how she stays grounded while fighting for climate action. Anika, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on the show. As an adult today, I would describe you as fairly fierce, passionate, and with a lot of courage. That makes me think, though, what were you like as a child? <laughs> Thanks very much for those descriptions. Um, uh, I mean, actually, I'm a very introverted person. Um, so, yeah, the terms yeah, fierce and a lot of courage, um, yeah aren't the first terms that spring to my mind when I think of myself. As a child, I grew up, I spent a lot of my time in Melbourne, so very much, you know, an urban, normal city kid upbringing. And I loved the outdoors, like I loved being out in the garden. And my parents, with backgrounds in environmental fields, like my mom is a botanist and geologist, my father's involved in environmental law, like we often did camping trips, like nature walks. And my parents really encouraged me to like always question the natural world and to look at it and like turn over the logs and leaves and inspect it closely. So I had a curiosity about nature 
from a very early age. Would you say then, that, though, I guess compared to today, like you said, you are you are an introvert and it, it's a funny balance because you are in a way outspoken um, in that you're so active in the space that you work in and that you advocate for, but you are also quite uh, quiet. Um, as a child, I'm guessing you weren't perhaps outspoken then. Were you more, more in the background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and... Like, I think naturally I'm a very quiet person and, like, I love to listen to other people first, like, at a dinner table or at an event. Like, I'm the one who sits back and, like, just enjoys listening to other people's conversations and stories. Um, and, you know, that's also a good thing because you, you learn a lot about the world just by being quiet and, like, listening to it and inspecting it, um, so I'm all, I'm still like that. But yeah, definitely as a child, I was very much like this. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just thinking that, yeah, that makes sense that that's who you are today and who you were as a child. But for what some people may know you as, which is a, a leader and an advocate in a particular space, I, I suppose that shows how important that causes to you that it would bring you from right out of your comfort zone and what you'd rather be doing to being this leader and advocate. Absolutely. Fierce person. <laughs> I think so. Um, absolutely it is because, you know, I feel such a, a sense of love and respect for the natural world and, you know, the planet and the community that I feel so honoured to be amongst. That is what drives me to speak out and to find my courage and to put myself out there, you know, in the public and to talk and to write and to post things on social media because I really do care about these things. So, yes, it doesn't come naturally to me at all, like doing public speaking or like putting myself out there in the spotlight, but I do it because I am so driven by this desire to look after home and community that I'm willing to do it and fight for it. And while you said that as a child you were encouraged to be interested in nature and the natural world, I suppose if we can pinpoint a moment which kind of put you on this trajectory, would it be when your parents moved far out west New South Wales? Absolutely. So my parents purchased our farm in far western New South Wales in beautiful Willyakali country when I was 12 years old. And my eyes were just like open to this incredible outback landscape you know, horizons that go on forever, you know, watching emus march across the paddocks, wedgetail eagles above. And I was just like awestruck, like just fell head over heels in love with this place. But we actually bought in the year 2000, which many people might recall was the start of the decade-long millennium drought. And for much of the country, including far western New South Wales, we pretty much had 10 years of little to no rainfall. So I had come to this incredible place, fallen in love with it, and then as the seasons and the years progressed, watched it suffer, like watched it dry out before my eyes, you know, the water evaporated from the dams, the the kangaroos and emus disappeared, the birds stopped singing in the trees, and like it really did have an effect on me, like watching that drought unfold. And not only the impact it was having on the landscape around me, but, you know, seeing the worry in people's faces, like the drought is a really tough thing to go through and no one has a crystal ball knowing when it's going to end. You know, are you going to get rain next week or in two years time? And so it's that uncertainty. And so it was, 
yeah, falling in love with the farm and then experiencing those first years of drought and understanding just how connected people are to the health of the landscape that set me on this trajectory. Last night, you spoke at a dinner, which I had the privilege of attending, and you started off the talk by asking the audience to, I guess, I guess it was a little bit of an activity. And I was wondering if you could do that for our audience listening today, because I found it to be incredibly powerful. Absolutely. Um, so last night at the dinner, I put up a photo of an incredible landscape in rural Australia, and I asked the audience to think of a place that they feel a sense of connection to, a place that they feel like they belong, like they could put their hand on the earth and feel their own heart beating. And I want people to imagine that place, the sounds, the colours, like smell that fragrance. Because when I think of my home, like that image that landscape like just appears in my mind and that's absolutely what drives me in everything I do oh I just got goosebumps and like I could feel like my eyes welling up and I'm like oh that's a bit of calm down stuff <laughs> but that's how powerful like that was such a powerful statement and ask that you put to the audience and then you went on to describe home so I was wondering for our listeners who have never been out to your part of the world um, yeah, tell us about home. What's the property called? Um, what do you do there? And then just, yeah, I know you have an amazing way with words when you describe it. So uh, I am so lucky, so privileged to live in far western New South Wales um, on a land of ruby red soils and sapphire blue skies. And it is a place where you can walk all day and not see another person, but you do see a lot of kangaroos and you see this incredible wildlife around you, like flocks of thousands of emerald budgerigars um, and ducks on the dam. And each morning, like at dawn, I get up and I go for a walk and I like draw in that, that fragrance of the arid lands. And like, I just feel as though my roots are there. And this is a place that I call home and I, I want to look after. So my family's property is called Rupee Station. Um, and that name actually comes from the early Cameleers, the Afghan Cameleers who opened up so much of Outback Australia. And, uh, the word Rupee was, and yeah, it still is the currency, the coin used in Afghanistan and other parts of the world, such as India. And Rupee means silver and Broken Hill is a mining town, silver, lead and zinc. And so our property is a, a nod to that part of history. Um, so we purchased in the year 2000 and we had been running African sheep, so Damaras and Dorpers, as well as harvesting the rangeland goats. And it's myself, my parents and my husband out there. You speak about home with such an intense love, but you, you mentioned just before that when you moved out there as a 12-year-old, it was just at the start or before, I mean, nobody knew that you were at the start of the big drought. And droughts are hard and they're horrible. I wonder how have you come out the other side of it for what you said would end up being a decade long drought, loving this place instead of resenting it and hating it. And especially as a child thinking, well, this is just some kind of hellhole dust bowl and I want to get 
the hell out of here. I want to leave and not come back. But if it's the opposite with you. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like it could have make made me or broken me, I guess. Um, and yeah, people who live in so many rural parts of the country, like they really do know the devastation that a drought can cause for themselves and mental health, the families, the environment, the livestock, their livelihoods. Like it really is an intense thing, the drought to experience. I think, you know, living through that experience and having that challenge presented in front of me, it wasn't something that I thought, you know, I want to step away from and back away from, and this is someone else's problem to deal with. It actually like drew my curiosity out of me. And I thought, you know, well, how do we actually, you know, survive droughts? How do we like produce food for people during droughts? How do we look after this incredible biodiversity that we get to live alongside of? And I think it was that curiosity and questioning that then led me down the path of science and, you know, studying a bachelor, then a master's, then a PhD. And that endless questioning of trying to work out, well, you know, what's my place in the world? How does the world work? How do all these different pieces of the puzzle fit together? And how can the next generation of farmers, you know, people like myself who want to live on the land and grow food and fibers have a beautiful, vibrant future when we are faced with really big challenges like the drought? What did the day-to-day life during the drought look like for you? Because these are also quite formative years. This is when you're a teenager and you want to be going and having fun with friends and you start to notice boys and and you were still going to school in Melbourne, so travelling back and forth. But drought, as we know, uh, the impact, I suppose, from within the community, uh, did you have to go without things? You know, how did it affect your parents and then how they parented you? Yeah, look, we didn't have to go without. Like, we're quite – blessed in that respect. And so I continued my education in Melbourne. And so I was living a bit of a a dual life, like going to school in Melbourne, being amongst that city environment, explaining to my friends, you know, I'm so looking forward to school holidays because I get to go back out to Broken Hill to the farm. And them, you know, having this curious expression on their face, like, really, you're excited to go back to Broken Hill? (laughs) I'm like, yeah, you know, I've got horses in the paddock, you know, there's canoes sitting on the dam waiting for it to rain again. Like we've got motorbikes in the shed. Like to me, the farm was this incredible playground, like this place that I learned so much. I experienced so much, you know, I was learning to drive years before my, you know, my friends in Melbourne were even thinking about getting behind a steering wheel. And it was all that, you know, that bush kid experience where you're just like, unleashed and you just learn about the world and you get to experience it with such intensity. So I loved that. But then it was also um, that contrast of then coming back to Melbourne and being amongst people in a community who I felt were very detached from life in rural Australia and from farm systems and from food production. And I guess that also made me question, you know, how does this work that we have most of our population living in a city and are so unaware of what's actually happening out there in the bush? And as the drought unfolded and I tried to then explain to my friends in Melbourne, like, this is what we were actually experiencing. Like, 
you know, here's a photo of a dust storm and people go, wow, like I've never seen one of those. Um, and I just sort of learned that we really have to, you know, communicate what's happening in rural Australia and the importance of farmers and farming. What were the impacts on your local community like? What what was Broken Hill like to live in and be around during that decade-long drought? The thing that sort of really struck me were the dust storms. Um, you know, as the drought uh, continued over the years, the, the soil was dried out, the vegetation was disappearing, and you know, the wind would just pick up the sand, you know, this this red sand, just put it up there into the skies and you would see like on the horizon, like the horizon turning orange and then red and then deep burgundy colour and then, you know, it's suddenly it's over you and your house and like the day almost turns to night, like it's that intense. And like those experiences of these giant dust storms becoming more frequent too, like from going, you know, once every six months to once every two months to once, you know, every fortnight and just going, wow, the, these are intense experiences. And as a kid, there's also this air of like, oh, my God, a dust storm is rolling in. Like there's a bit of an excitement and you run around like closing the doors and the windows. But then when you're sort of like in the dust storm too, you like you go, God, how are my horses coping out there? And holy moly, like driving into town and there's just like dust everywhere and you see people like sweeping out the shop fronts and, yeah, you realise it's not just like fun and games, it's it's something that's really serious that's happening around you. You describe dust storms as monsters mm. and droughts as thieves. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so I do describe dust storms as monsters that, yeah, you see them crawling along the landscape, like you see them coming and growing in size, you know, from a um, a tinge on the horizon to this giant thing that suddenly, you know, as high as, as can be and just like engulfs you and you feel, you know, very small and insignificant in that moment and no matter what you do, like you can't stop that dust and you know that it's stripping away your topsoil full of the nutrients and carbon and seed and you go god like i know that's not good and this dust storm it's being driven by this prolonged drought condition by these dry times and the these dry times they are like thieves in that they take the vegetation, they take your water, they take your livestock and crops and you see people leaving town and you feel your, you know, your mental health, you know, you start questioning that with growing anxiety or worry or depression. And yeah, I really do feel like they are monsters and thieves. I I found that quite powerful last night, particularly the thieves analogy saying, you know, like it steals the water, it steals the vegetation. And then you said it steals people. Mm. And while you just said there about people leaving town, that also speaks to the, the suicide mm. that we, that we see in drought times or not just in drought times, but I think, I suppose, um, becomes more prevalent and prominent yeah. in drought times. And I just found that to be a really powerful way of describing it that I haven't, I've never heard anyone describe drought as a thief, and I think that's... Yeah, and I think it is this sort of, like when you're living through a drought, like it feels like there's a, a sinister shadow, like 
something lurking and you you feel this sense of unease. And I think it's that uncertainty of like when a drought is going to end. You sort of feel like, you know, there's something in the shadows just like lingering there and you don't know when it's going to go away. Um, and it's also that, that whole connection, like the thief, the drought, it is taking away the environment that you loved and you cherished, like the vegetation, the wildlife, the livestock. It's taking away your livelihoods, you know, your ability to produce food or fibers and earn an income. And then it's also having that social impact too, like on the people that you care about. At the talk last night, you said that there was a point where you asked yourself, what are we asking of our planet? When did that point come for you? So undertaking a, a bachelor of science specializing in agribusiness, like I knew I was really interested in you know, the big picture, like trying to figure out how everything works in the world. And I was really drawn to, you know, this, this conversation around climate change. And I actually think it was because, you know, I sat down one evening and I watched, um, Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. And dad had borrowed it from the video shop and like put it in on a Friday night. And I was like rolling my eyes thinking, Oh my God, what a waste of a Friday night movie from Video Easy. <laughs> Um, you know, how boring a, a movie about the weather. Um, and I watched it and I was like, wow, like this actually makes sense to me. Like we're living through the droughts. I'm sort of noticing this change in the environment and our community. And okay, we're putting more and more pollution into the air. We're asking more and more of our planet. Like we're extracting more, we're, we're polluting, we're consuming, we're wasting of course that's going to have impact on the world we we live in. Of course that's going to have an impact on the climate, like this fragile climatic system which drives temperature and rainfall and the species diversity and where they are located. And so that was sort of like my penny drop moment, I guess, um, yeah, about that whole issue of climate change. So were you already at uni at that stage? So, yeah, so I had just started uni at that stage from memory. And what was your your intention with your degree and your study? What did you think you were going to use it for? I think, you know, I was, I was just interested in agriculture in general, I think. Um, you know, I, I wanted to be in rural Australia. I wanted to be working with farmers, but I didn't know exactly what that was going to be, whether it was to do with – horses and livestock or out there in cropping fields, you know, it all interested me. But going to uni and learning about some of the the challenges and then realizing, wow, climate change is a really big challenge. Like that's sort of the umbrella that we all have to operate under. Um, I sort of realized, well, is there any bigger challenge to try and <laughs> figure out what we need to do about this issue? And so it just like drew me further and further in and you know, everything, whether we're interested in, you know, community vibrancy and mental health issues or biodiversity or looking after our rivers, like if we ruin the climate, like all of these things crumble underneath it. So, yeah, as I progressed through university, I was more and more attracted to subjects that had a climate focus. And when I had the freedom to choose projects or research questions that I wanted to ask, 
Um, I was always putting climate in there. Um, so I just naturally became more and more interested in that aspect. And the more I learned, the more I realized I didn't know and just sort of went down that rabbit hole. How do you balance that rabbit hole? I suppose it could be quite easy once you, I mean, you're already aware of the drought. You've kind of been living through this and then you kind of come across like climate change, that, that concept and, and you're interested, but it's also a very scary kind of doom and gloom. Um, thing. And you're a young person who's kind of at the start of your life and it should be exciting and fun. And, and how do you balance kind of following this passion and this interest and curiosity, but not letting it weigh you down and kind of get you into a spiral of thinking, Oh my God. And, and in a way, I suppose for me, I mean, as all of us, we, we all have a stake in this game or in this, this issue. Um, but for you, there's that extra layer of skid in the game because as you learn more and more about climate change, you know, and you've seen at home what's happening, it's, it's almost making the vi- the long-term viability of the family property look more and more questionable and that's your future. So how do you balance being a young person, kind of having fun, going out, you know, um, and then this all this darkness? Yeah. Um, well, firstly, I don't have much of a social life. <laughs> <laughs> we can change that. That's all right. <laughs> have you got some recommendations? Um no, yes, what you say is so true. Like, um, for a topic like climate change, it can feel so daunting and overwhelming. Like, we know it is this big, complex, global challenge. And when you're looking at the science sometimes, whether that's climate change, whether you're looking at, you know, ecology and species and understanding, you know, the rate that we're losing species and all of this or looking at the health of river systems or refill and aquifers. Um, you know, sometimes you look at the science and you go, gosh, like we really are in a pickle. Like there's a lot of. It's a very diplomatic yeah. way of saying it. <laughs> Quite a pickle. <laughs> um, yeah, like the planet really is like hurting in a lot of ways. But then I also look at the science of what we can do about it. And I understand like there are so many innovations out there and I go to rural communities and I see like the most determined, driven people ever. And that's why I love working with farmers because they're not people who like sit back on the couch and like point fingers and wait for someone else to fix something. Like it's up to them to actually put on the boots, walk out the front door, grab a plier and some pairs of wire and, you know, fix a problem, whatever that problem is, broken windmill, you know, tractor bog, you know, the cows are out, whatever. Farmers are this amazing breed of people who, like, get on with the job. And, like, I just love that mentality and I think we need more of that mentality when we come to issues like climate change. Like, it's all of our responsibilities. We all got to slip on the boots and walk out the front door and, like, work out what we can do. And we all have, like, this different sphere of influence too. Like, you know, I recognize I have some knowledge and skills and I can contribute to helping solve this problem in that way. And every single person has a different sphere of influence. They can reach different people. They can contribute different ideas and knowledge. And it's that collective power which actually gives me so much hope and optimism for the future uh so yeah that's what keeps me like yeah 
that was probably Hopefully. the big takeaway from your presentation last night is that whenever you hear about climate change in the media, it is all about what's wrong and all and all the impacts and the negative impacts of climate change. And I just think it's so easy to get bogged down in the overwhelm, like, and then you get this paralysis and we're just like, oh my God. And you just be like, you know what? I'll just let someone, no, whatever. I'll just, I'll just pay Qantas my little extra $10 for the car and credits. I'm done. But that's it. I'm done. Um, but you, you had this balance last night where you really, you emphasized and you very well communicated the issues, the pickle that we're in. But I didn't feel like I was bogged down and overwhelmed by the end of your presentation. It was because uh, you spoke about what we can do and how much how much there is that can be done and that how achievable it is. And that was probably the first time I think it's been communicated like that to me so clearly because everything else is just people finding about policy and emissions and this government made this pledge for the Paris Agreement and now this one's coming in and they don't think we're – and it just and, – and the other point, I suppose, is that people, you get saturated with this and you just tune out, like you just – tune out for it but I think that was really powerful last night I know I keep saying I mean the whole night was powerful let's be honest but um yeah that there's so much that can be done you went on to study a master's and a PhD so you are actually Dr. Anika Molesworth what did you study? So I did a master's in sustainable agriculture um, and I did it half in Australia and I then had this really strong desire to learn from other people and cultures and places around the world. So I ended up going to Laos in Southeast Asia and working with some of the world's poorest farmers, traveling around with a translator, interviewing farmers of their perspectives of climate change. Um, what are they doing about it? How is the climate changing around them? And these farmers that I was working with in Laos, most of them are illiterate. They've had no formal education um, they've spent their whole lives in rural villages working on the farms. And they could tell me so precisely how the environment is changing. Like they could tell me the number of days that the dry season is extending each year. They could describe the new insects that they see eating their crops. And when I asked, you know, what do you think is driving this? They would point to the forest and say, because we're moving, we're, we're removing those forests, you know, pointing to the mountains and the trees that used to be there. That's why we're seeing these new insects. This is why the dry season is extending and we don't have the water anymore. And so even people who haven't had, you know, a formal education or introduction of the term of climate change, they could tell me so clearly how the environment is changing and how it's impacting them and their communities because they have such an affinity with the land and with the surrounds, the nature. And, you know, that's another thing that I, I love about farmers and people who live in rural communities because they really do feel, you know, a part of their natural surroundings. You know, you're not just here to live and work, you're, you're part of it. Uh, then after I completed the master's, because I'm a sucker for punishment, I went on to do a PhD. Um, but really it's because I have this insatiable curiosity and just love questioning um, and love learning. And, you know, if these problems were easy, we would have solved them already. So we've got to keep on, like, trying to work out, you know, what's the issue? How do we you know, find solutions. What are the solutions? How do we amplify the solutions that are already out there? 
So again, my PhD was half Australian-based, half in Southeast Asia, in Cambodia. And again, got to work with incredible people around the world, learned so much from, you know, two very different parts of the world. You know, in Australia, we are incredibly fortunate, you know, a stable political system, you know, we generally have financial resources or labor resources or ability to change and adapt. Whereas if you're working in a developing country with subsistence farmers, they have very little capacity to make change because they have very small land sizes, you know, half a hectare, um, very few labor resources. Generally it's, you know, husband, wife, and the kids, um, you know, poor financial resources, all of these things. And so the ability to make change and respond to something like climate changes is so much more difficult. And that's why, you know, in developing nations and impoverished farming communities, like they really do feel the the brunt of climate change, you know, the floods, the droughts, the pest outbreaks, they really do have a, a significant impact, which causes them to tumble further into hardship. And yeah, that's why I'm very passionate about us in Australia, you know, doing our bit on these issues so we can assist, you know, our global farming family um, and especially people who don't have the same capacity as we do. As you said, you're a sucker for punishment and after the Masters and PhD, you didn't stop there. You founded an organisation called Farmers for Climate Action. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I co-founded um, with an amazing group of farmers in Australia. So about six years ago, a group of 30 farmers got together in the Blue Mountains and we were from all parts of the country, all different backgrounds, you know, banana growers from far north Queensland, uh, dairy farmers from the Gippsland, myself from the, the arid region and sheep and goats. And we sat down and we just had this conversation that, you know, we were all feeling the impacts of climate change in our different places and in our different industries. Um, we didn't feel like the media was representing farmers the way that it should. You know, there was a lot of, you know, is the, is the, the science real and, you know, climate denialism. And like, this was really mainstream press. And that was, you know, being perpetuated by many political leaders, you know, also creating this, this toxic narrative around climate change and dismissal and downplaying of the science, the realities of what was actually happening. And so this group of 30 farmers said, you know, well, we got to do something about this. We can't just let our homes, our businesses, you know, fall to this, this really big problem and not have tried anything ourselves. So in the beginning, we just set up a informal group, you know, a Facebook page, Farmers for Climate Action. We had, you know, monthly get togethers on the phone. And we realized that more and more people were approaching us and like liking the page and asking us questions, inviting us to give a presentation or give a, a radio interview. And it just grew and grew and grew. So fast forward to today, six years later, we have around 8,000 farmers in Australia, 35,000 non-farmers. Um, we work very closely with policymakers and industry bodies to make sure that there are the best strategies in place to reduce emissions and benefit rural communities. We work very closely with scientists and bring them to rural locations. So 
farmers know what a change in climate actually means. How do we adapt? How do we reduce emissions? We also work closely in helping farmers share their stories and like get true, honest accounts out there in mainstream press and engage the wider Australian audience on these really big issues. What are some of the, when you're working with policy uh, makers, what are some of the things that you're asking for and the changes that you want to see? Yeah, so we believe that, you know, policymakers all over the country, like we need to be thinking about the climate and the environment as, you know, the bedrock, the foundation for our communities, for our social systems. And if we allow climate change to run away, we see a deterioration of those social systems because of the deterioration of the environment. But by implementing climate, you know, wise strategies, whether that's renewable energies or um, preventing deforestation or doing, um, you know, tree plantings or looking at livestock genetics, whatever it is for different regions, there's this like flow of positive benefit in that that actually brings in new jobs into rural communities, that opens up new markets for farmers, that increases the value for many food and fiber products if we can do things better, you know, more efficiently. And so it's not about, you know, saying this is the solution that we want implemented. It's working with the policymakers and industry bodies and going, well, for this region, for this community, for this industry, we see all these opportunities how do we amplify? How do we expand those opportunities? How do we work together um, as all of community to help deliver this so we actually have, you know, the most beautiful, vibrant future we can imagine? The opportunities for addressing climate change are so varied. Like I, I see it as a spectrum. And so you've just described one end is working with policymakers, which to me is very high level and things that can be implemented there will have a big, broad impact. And then you can come right back down to, say, the community level, farm level, individual person level, things that we make, the choices we make every day. Back home on Rupee Station, what are you doing to, I suppose, do your part in that small local, well, not small area, but in that localised area? Yeah, so on my family's property, we have solar panels, um, we have an electric car, so we're trying to get off fossil fuel dependency and, you know, be part of renewable energies. And, like, it brings me so much joy, like, filling up my car on sunlight. Like, I love being able to do that, and I would love to see more charging stations around the country and especially rural Australia. So rural Australians can be part of this really exciting transformation in the transport sector, which is coming. And I don't want rural Australians to be left behind in this. Um, we have also identified a number of rare and threatened species on our farm. So we have set up conservation reserves. So building fences to prevent grazing to make sure that there is the regeneration of certain plant species and animal species. Um, we're involved in a number of citizen science projects. For instance, um, my whole family on our phones, we have this frog ID app by the Australian Museum. And so we go down to the dam at night and you record the frog calls and that gets uploaded to a national database. So the Australian Museum is actually monitoring 
what frog species are where, um, you know, are species disappearing, are they moving? And so that really helps, you know, researchers and scientists understand changes that are happening in our in our landscape. We also have like plant ID apps and all of this. So they're just citizen science projects that anyone can download and be involved with. And they're super important. We also have um, a few universities running trials on our property. So actually studying soil carbon and measuring it at different times of the year and like trying to work out what's changing, how is it changing, how do we, you know, make sure that we've got good soil carbon going into the future and um, good microbial activity. Um, and I guess the, the last thing that we're really focusing on more and more is adapting our livestock grazing practices to focus on biodiversity conservation first and foremost. So making sure that we have that really healthy foundation of native plants and animals and the soils and the water which then gives us an opportunity to produce food. Um, and we're also involved in a number of wildlife rehabilitation efforts too with the, the local wildlife rescue group. For listeners who perhaps don't have any experience um, with livestock grazing, can you describe what that actually means when you say you're working on their grazing practices to promote biodiversity? Yeah. Like what does that actually mean? Yeah, so we're very, um, I guess, responsive to seasonal conditions. So when we notice like it's drying out and we're listening to bomb and, you know, the three-month forecast is such and such, we'll make a decision quite early, okay, well, we're going to destock earlier so we're not carrying livestock into a drying period. We don't want to be feeding livestock during a drought so that's our decision that we've made. So we'll try and remove our livestock before a really bad dry period hits us. Of course, that means you then have to buy in livestock if you want at the end of a drought, but that's sort of how we're running our business operation. And it's also managing livestock at a, a really conservative level, so making sure that there is really good grass species out there that we can see the finches and the wrens, you know, hopping around in the landscape um, because they are indicators that we've got a, a healthy natural environment. I can't move on to the next part of the conversation without talking a bit more about the electric car first, okay. which is uh, as soon as you mentioned that last <laughs> night, so – a while back, earlier on this year on the podcast, listeners may remember um, David and Francis Pollock from Willene Station in WA, who I feel like you guys would be BFFs, and Francis really wants an electric car. Uh, but unfortunately, yeah, there's nowhere vaguely, I think, like the nearest charging station. I don't even know. It might be Perth or something like it's like a good six, eight hours away. Um, so I know she'll be listening to this like on the edge of her seat. I don't really know much about electric cars, um, but tell me about it. How does it work? Um, how far are you from town or from the next charging station? Like, what? Yeah. Yeah. So Give me the rundown. <laughs> um, for many, many years, my husband and I have wanted an electric car. Like, we've just been, you know, fascinated by that technology and we've both come to that point from very different angles. Like I've always wanted an electric car because of the environmental reasons, because there is no tailpipe emissions that you can charge it off solar panels if you've got solar. 
Um, so that was my draw towards electric vehicles. My husband is a rev head. Like he loves fast cars and powerful cars and electric vehicles are that like, you know, you put your foot down and, you know, you've got to brace your neck. Like they are, they are quick. <laughs> so he came from it from definitely a power tech perspective. I came from it from an environmental perspective and we made a decision last year. Yep. We're going to do it. Finally, you know, we can't keep on waiting for whatever. Um, so we sold a car each to afford our one electric car. And we needed to do that because the car maker model that we required, which has a long range, the longest range is a very expensive electric car. But we needed the long range because, yeah, we do live remotely and to get from Broken Hill to any of the nearest towns where there is another charger, uh, you have to drive, you know, at least, say, 300 kilometers. And so you had to, at minimum, be able to cover that distance. So we got the car. Um, before that, I had never been a car person, like, bore me to tears cars. Like, <laughs> my poor husband was always going on about them. And I was just like, you know, having a snooze in the background. But then since driving the electric car, it's like, wow, like, this is amazing. Like, it is smooth. It is quiet. Like, there's no sounds. Um, it is fast. It is the safest vehicle out there. There's no tailpipe emissions. I'm just like, wow, like, it's incredible. They're also like, a computer on wheels, like the tech in these things is mind blowing. So our car, um, so it's a Tesla model three long range. It's can do about 500 kilometers in city driving. And so when you are doing city driving, you're braking more at red lights and the braking process actually regenerates the battery. So you get a longer distance. Oh. Yeah, but if you're doing country roads like highway driving and not braking, you actually get a shorter distance. So it's like the opposite of fuel. Exactly. So it's the opposite of a conventional car. So highway driving, we probably get like 420 kilometers on a, a charge. There are many ways you can charge an electric vehicle. So, you know, any power point, like any standard wall plug is a potentially a, you know, a petrol station for your car. Like you can just plug it in anywhere and get a charge. If you plug it into a normal um, wall socket, though, it's it's quite a slow charge, which is fine if you've done a run into town and you've come back and you've only used like one, two, three percent of your battery. You just plug it in overnight and it tops it back up. But if you're doing the longer distances, you need to get to a town where you have a fast charger and they like charge your car a lot more rapidly. And then there are also super fast chargers, which charge a thousand kilometers in an hour type thing. So they're super fast. So you only need to stop there for 15 minutes or so when your car's fully topped up. And when you're doing long outback travel, you like to stop to like go to the local bakery or use the bathroom. Like you are stopping every now and again. So just like rolling up to a charger, plugging it in, it's not too difficult. But at the moment, because there is limited infrastructure, especially in rural Australia, you've got to plan a bit ahead. 
So there are apps on your phone which show you where the charges are. So we just mark it out. Okay, for, to get from Broken Hill to Adelaide, we need to go through these towns. That's where we'll have lunch. That's where we'll have like an afternoon break. So it adds a little extra time. But for the benefits, I say like, yeah, I, I am so happy we have an electric car. I suppose it's like chicken and egg, you know, which comes first. You need the demand of electric cars to have more charging stations. Absolutely. But to have an electric car, you need charging stations. Like it's it's not a big incentive to go and get one if you if there's only one charging station in, in your district um, yeah. or that part of the state. So yeah, it's it's I think it's just one of those things, I suppose, where it, it's so early on relatively in the scheme of things that you know, you're what we'd call an early adopter and give it 20 years and there'll be charging stations everywhere and cars Absolutely. everywhere. And then it will be a lot easier for other people to justify it, I suppose, and to, to make that decision. Um, they just sound fascinating. I had no idea they could be so fast. Can you, I can't remember if you said something last night about, so you can plug them in to charge them, but can you like, could you like just cover your car or the roof and like solar panels and somehow charge it as you drive like is that an option yeah so i think there are some uh people like experimenting with that my understanding is that the roof size if you fully covered it with solar it provides like very minimal input so Mm. maybe it would give you like 14 kilometers more Ah, per 24 hours yeah so like although it does put energy back into the car for I think the added expense of having a solar roof. Yeah. It's not quite there yet. But that doesn't mean like in the future it won't be because yeah, like, but- you know, every day, um, you know, solar panels are being improved and mm-hmm. all of this, like they're becoming smaller and more efficient. So potentially in the future. Yeah, that would be so cool. And so do you just use this kind of going to town or do you take it out on the property? Like how does it handle? I suppose that's that's the other thing is while there's limited infrastructure in rural Australia, I'm guessing there's probably limited make and models. It's not like you can go and get the, the Land Cruiser version of an electric car yet. Yes. Yeah, it's so true. Um, unfortunately, Australia, because we haven't had very good incentives around electric cars or, you know, very good action on electrifying the system full stop, um, we have very few makes and models available here in Australia, which is unfortunate for rural people if you're in a city um yes like a short range electric car cheaper models like they are great they make sense but in outback australia where you need to do long distances you need cars that have a big battery uh you also want higher ground clearance you want to be able to put on a bull bar you want to have a tray back to throw your luggage in so those makes and models don't exist quite yet so our electric car that I drive, it is very low to the ground, but probably the same as a, you know, a Ford Fiesta or any other low car. Our driveway is two kilometers of rough dirt road of potholes, dry creeks, railway line, um, cattle grid. So it's a rough dirt driveway and the, the electric car like makes it down just fine. You just drive it slowly like you would any normal low to um two-wheel drive car but yeah my hope is that as we see um more interest and demand for electric cars we get more makes and models coming into this country which are better suited for rural people is the teslas are they what elon musk is known for is he tied up in that exactly okay um 
Well, listen, he's already, we're waiting for that Starlink that's on its way up. I've got, I know people in the region up here that are kind of on the waiting list to get, apparently that's just been a game changer over East for people in rural areas. So if he can revolutionize internet and he's, I'm sure there's nothing like he can get us some Land Cruiser 300 series version of a Tesla. I have to ask, do you have a bull bar on your car? Because you've, you've invested a bit of money. I don't even know ballpark how much, but. Like you said, there's, you know, 100 to 1, 100 kangaroos to one person out where you live. And imagine if you were driving your car and little Skippy jumps out. Yeah, exactly. Um, We don't have a bull bar on our car. Oh, touch wood. (laughs) (laughs) We're surrounded by plastic and glass and metal. Where's the wood? (laughs) So hopefully that doesn't happen. (laughs) Oh, my God. I feel like I've just jinxed you. (laughs) So bad. Oh, okay. So no bull bar yet, but I'm just going to pretend we didn't talk about that (laughs) and hopefully I haven't jinxed you. And if, anyway, moving on. Um, so as we start to wrap up, one of the things you said last night is that we need to start moving away, uh, we as a collective society and I suppose as a world from being egocentric to ecocentric. Mm. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so egocentric is more thinking about self and individualism. It's more tied up in, you know, a materialistic culture of consumption. And a lot of times it's mindless consumption. You know, we are told that we want things that are cheap and you want things, you know, every season, you know, new fashion, new phone, new whatever. And, and then we end up wasting things too. Like we buy cheap things and then we throw out stuff and pretend that there is an away when there's no away. We're just burying stuff in a, in a hole in a landfill most of the time. That's not very good use of finite precious resources in this world. And so it's, yeah, this egocentric thinking that we can, you know, just consume, use, pollute and have no repercussions is is incorrect and it's what's damaging the world and so we need to be thinking more ecocentric as in understanding that we are part of a whole we're part of a a a national community here in australia we're part of a global community we are part of the landscape you know how we live and interact with it actually does impact the the health of the rivers, the quality of the soils, the, the welfare of our animals and wildlife, and understanding that role we play, again, can feel like daunting and go, oh my gosh, like I have such an influence. But it's also very empowering because when we realize that we do have an influence on everyone and everything around us, it means that, okay, the choices that I make do have either a negative or positive effect. And if I choose to do something different, something might be a bit better, you know, refusing the plastic bags or the plastic straws, you know, changing my diet and eating local produce instead of flying things in from the other side of the world, choosing not to buy things, you know, that are wrapped in plastic and styrofoam and excessive packaging, um, you know, finding ways to offset carbon when you're flying or look in an electric vehicle or investigate putting solar panels or battery storage on our roofs. Like there are so many things we can do as individuals, you know, in our households, in our kids' schools, in our community centers, in our businesses, one actually starts to feel very empowered. And that's where the change happens. 
And if each of us makes those seemingly, seemingly small little tweaks in our lives, we actually have this tidal wave of positive effect on our world. You've developed three steps that you think are, uh, I guess, a starting point to, for all of us to be able to kind of take action. What are those? Yeah, so I think we need to help educate, engage and empower people. So having conversations like this, you know, and having those conversations around the kitchen table, like the science shows that our most trusted messengers are our family and friends. So when we sit down with a family and friend and talk about, you know, how do we recycle better? How do we, you know, get renewable energies on the council buildings? How do we get an EV charger in our town? Um, having those conversations is incredibly important. The second thing that I think is really critical is bringing policies in line with the science. So we have this wealth of evidence and information out there like we really do know what's driving these environmental problems we face and we have an abundance of solutions and innovations that are out there. So how do we actually put those into policies? How do we actually develop these strategies so we can implement them? And once we have those strategies, that actually gives guidance and confidence to investors to go, okay, well, Australia is taking this, you know, net zero target seriously. We're going to you know, have more renewable energy projects. And we're going to roll them out in these communities because they're putting their hands up and saying, we want more community projects. We want employment and, um, you know, new money rolling into our town. So we want to be part of this transformation. So that's the policies in line with the science. And thirdly, I think it's really important that we all share our stories, that we all speak up and have the courage to speak up. And going back to, you know, where we started this conversation, you know, naturally I'm a very quiet, introverted person. Like it doesn't come naturally to me at all, you know, being public, putting myself in a place of visibility. But I think it is so important that we each share our concerns and our worries, but also like what makes us hopeful? What makes us excited? Like what is our vision for our communities? Um. And those stories, you know, are then come, become realities. You do an incredible job of inspiring action and motivation in people rather than instilling fear, which is really the easiest thing to do in this topic, in this space. And as we said before, you know, when you come at it from that angle, that's when people can just get this paralysis and it's just – you know, that's someone else's problem to deal with and and I'm just one person and it's just, honestly, it's so easy to just not do anything. Um, it does, and as you said, you are a quiet person. It's, it's not natural for you or it's not your chosen space um, to be out here and putting yourself out here. So obviously it must take some sort of a toll on you. How do you, I suppose, ground yourself and keep your batteries recharged? Oh, don't mind the keep your electric batteries <laughs> recharged mind the pun um to you know like this is a, this is a very heavy space and it can you can go down the rabbit rabbit hole and i know you said earlier that you focus on what can be done but i'm sure there must be times where you go and meet with someone and it doesn't go and you must walk away from certain meetings or and just be like oh my god like are we just is this futile like is what is the point of any of this are we going to make change and so how do you i guess find that balance and keep 
yourself grounded. Totally. And it is so important that we don't burn out ourselves when we are, you know, trying to address these big issues. You know, the old saying is, uh, you know, when you get on a plane, like apply the oxygen mask to yourself before you can help anyone else. And so you have to do that. You have to be able to look after oneself. So, I haven't always done it well, for sure. Like I have absolutely crossed my boundaries and got to points of burnout where I've become like, you know, <laughs> fetal position in the bed and not able to get up in the morning. So I've been there. Um, so I'm a lot more conscious about where my boundaries are these days and know that, okay, when I'm feeling really worn out, like I do have to take a, a step back and just read a book in bed with a cup of tea and like feel energized again. My daily practice, like I do get up in the morning and go for an hour long walk with my dog in the paddock. And every evening at sunset, I do that again. I go for an hour long walk in the paddock with my dog and bookending my day like that out there in nature, in quiet, like watching the glass fly overhead, you know, seeing the kangaroos in the paddock, like it reminds me like this is home, this is why I do what I do. That landscape really does recharge me and, you know, fills my soul every time like I I look out at this beautiful place. I also recognize that there are so many incredible people doing things out there, like different groups, community actions, you know, from land care groups, from farmers for climate actions to local businesses to school kids. Um, you know, when I look around, like I do see so much activity and we have come such a long way. The conversations are so much better today than they were five, 10 years ago. And that's great. So I do think that we are sort of stepping forward in the right direction. We just really need to pick up the pace. We just really need to do it a lot quicker. And I think as more people become engaged in these issues and asking, well, what can I do about it? Like we will see that pace um, and demand for change pick up. And so that's what really, you know, keeps my batteries full. It's been an absolute privilege being able to come and um, turn up at your hotel room at 7am on a Saturday morning so that you are able to, to make the time. And we just spoke about, you know, recharging and having boundaries. So I'm glad that you didn't have any with me though, but for everyone else, put your boundaries back up. Um, so I will let you get um, get going and get back on your way home to your your haven, your special place. Thank My you. last question for you, though, is looking back on your story so far, and let's all just take a moment to – I'm pretty sure we're the same age or you're a year older than me. That's what I've been working 35 at. 35 yesterday was my birthday. Oh, okay. oh that's right. <laughs> yes, it was okay. The room saying well, happy birthday. I don't want to age myself unnecessarily. You're two years older than me. Um, yeah, happy birthday, everyone. It was Anika's birthday yesterday. Um, so looking back on your story so far, which is – are to me still in its infancy. Like we're, we're so young. Um, imagine what will be ha- like when we have this conversation again in another like 30 years. What would you say is the major takeaway lesson? Like I do think courage is the, the takeaway lesson. Like I do think all of us need to have the courage to recognize the big challenges that are facing the world, you know, that are facing our communities, our farms, like at a very local level, but also like these big challenges that we're facing as a global community and as a global farming family and having the courage to go, 
I'm going to step up and do something about this. I'm going to speak about it. I'm going to do what I can in my home or my community to try and change the system. So I think it's, it's really important that we do draw on courage from these places and these people that we care about to enact positive change.